And so the forgiveness from the cross, it gives us insight into the heart of God and the links at which God is willing to go to to deliver humanity from the curse of death. And I, I love this, this story for, 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 for lots of reasons, but I think it plays really well. I think, I, think, I, think, I think it serves us well to be reminded of this, especially at the time that we live in right now, when, when everybody who doesn't think like you is supposed to be your enemy. When everyone who has a different worldview or a different understanding, a different value system is, is pitted against you as your enemy, where, where identity politics are at an all-time high, where, where uh, you know, there's so much vitriol and anger, like, like, like the words of Jesus really matter. They should, like, they, they should center all of us in times like this. They should cause us all to go, hey, like, all right. Well, if they are my enemy, then my response should not be hatred and anger. My response should be love. Like I should actually start praying for them. Like that's, that's how we respond as followers of Jesus. That's actually what makes us different. The beauty of the cross is that if these people can be forgiven, all these people around Jesus, if these people can be forgiven, then we can be forgiven of our sins as well. It's the beauty of the cross. It's the beauty of what's going on here. If putting the Son of God on the cross can be forgiven, what, what is it about you that could not be forgiven? Like there's nothing. If betraying and abandoning the Son of God by the disciples can be forgiven, then you can be forgiven as well. If a fickle crowd that turned their backs on him can be forgiven, then you can be forgiven as well. Here's what Jesus is saying from the cross. He's saying like, there is nothing you have done that God cannot forgive. Uh, we're starting a brand new teaching series today called Famous Last Words. Really excited about this series. Uh, it's going to lead us all the way up to uh, Easter Sunday, uh, which is, um, man, one of my most favorite days out of the year, the day we celebrate the greatest event in human history, right? The resurrection of Jesus, the event that changed everything in your life and in mine. And so um, this series is going to kind of build on itself each week, taking us all the way up to that day. Uh, as we get started here this morning, though, I, I want to just kind of maybe, maybe start here. Like, how, how many of you would acknowledge, in terms of famous last words, how many would acknowledge that for the most part, men are the ones who are most well-known for their famous last words? Anybody? Like, for instance, let, let, me, let, me, let me just help you. For instance, how many of y'all, like, have ever known a man who said something like this? And they're no, they're no longer living, by the way. Uh, because they said to a woman, like, how, how long have you been pregnant? And... Uh, she wasn't pregnant, right? So, like, if you've ever known someone who's ever asked a woman that question, uh, they're no longer with us, right? They are, de- they are dead. They are dead. Like, uh, famous last words, am I right? Famous last words. Or maybe, like, you, you heard a man say this one time, like, I know I'm not an electrician, uh, but how hard could it be? You know, <laughs> like, like, right? Like, famous last words, zap, right? It's, it's over. Um, my personal favorite, which I think is the most common, maybe you've heard, heard a man say something like this before, all right, out of my way, hold my beer, you know, <laughs> or, or in other words, like, out of my way, you know, everybody watch this, everybody watch this. In that moment, you just know it's game over, right? It, it's, 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 it's game over, like, full stop. Do not pass go, do not collect $200, famous last words. Men are known for this. So um, as we move on, you know, that's kind of like framing up what we're talking about just a little bit uh, because uh, famous last words, are, uh, are a big deal. In, in all seriousness, though, how many of you know that, uh, that beyond really the proverbial famous last words, uh, examples that I just gave of inserting foot into mouth, you know, 
like the last words that a, that a person chooses to, 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 to speak before they die are like a really big deal. It's like a really big deal. In fact, in fact, you can learn an awful lot about somebody from the final words that they choose to speak before they die. You can learn an awful lot about like, like what matters most. You can learn an awful lot about like what was on their mind and you know, what really mattered. Like what were those final thoughts before they took their last breath, before they passed away. And I mention all that because, you know, this coming Wednesday uh, on the Christian calendar is, is a very famous day. It's called Ash Wednesday. And uh, Ash Wednesday is the day that sort of begins the season of Lent, which signifies the 40 days leading up till Easter Sunday. And, you know, if, if any of you grew up in a, in a church environment that emphasized Ash Wednesday, maybe you have a memory of going to church on that day. Anybody? Uh, standing in a long line, uh, waiting to get up to the point where, like, you stand before the priest and they put ash on your forehead. And usually they would say something to the effect of, um, uh, you came from ash, and to ash you shall return. Something to that, to that, to that effect, right? So the, the whole purpose behind this tradition for much of, of, of uh, church history was for every Christian every year to come face-to-face with their own mortality. For every Christian every year to have a confrontation with their own mortality. Like, to remember that life as you know it will not last forever, that there is more to life than this life, to have this, this face-to-face moment with your own mortality that should cause us all to sort of think about how we live and to be willing to make like the, the changes that, that are necessary to make sure that we're living a life that really does make a difference. And so um, I want you to engage with this, this thought with me here this morning. I think perhaps more important than any other words a person may ever say, the last words before they die are the ones that stick with us. Like, like, think about it, as they are staring down their inevitable end, right, as they are uh, staring down the end of their life, it's, it's the last words that they choose that reveal what it is that's really on their mind in that moment, that, that reveals to us what, what really matters most to them in some ways. Think about the old Western movies, you know, before someone would be killed, you know, they'd be pointing the gun at them, and what would they say? They'd say, any last words before you die? I mean, that, that whole tradition has even, even continued up to 2023 when you think about like an inmate who's about to be executed, you know, when they are on death row. They, they are asked before they die, do you have any last words before you, before you die? Any last words? And th- this tradition has existed in human history. It's like, it's like we've all just, just understood, no matter like, like what culture we're in or, or whatever, like, like that there is something important about the last words of somebody's life. It's, it's kind of this idea that, that no matter... No matter if you're a, uh, a convicted felon on death row or you're like some elderly person laying on your deathbed, you know, about to take your last breath, that there is something about the last words. It's this idea that after all of these years, after everything you've done, like what do you have to say for it, good or bad? What do you have to say for it? And here is your last chance to, 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 to choose your words carefully to reveal what it is that actually exists in your heart. And, and that's, that's really the idea about it. There's something powerful in the last words that somebody chooses before they die. I remember a year and a half ago when my, my grandfather passed away really unexpectedly. He was in his mid-80s, but he was pretty strong. He came down with COVID, and it, it just kind of ravaged his lungs, and he didn't, he didn't recover. And I remember my, my, grandfa- or my, my dad coming um, home to spend those days in the hospital with my, gran- my grandpa, and um, I remember hearing the stories. Of, of my dad and my grandpa in those last few days before he passed away. And, and it's interesting, like, what people want to talk about in those, in those moments. 
You know, think about my grandpa's life in his mid-80s, all the things that he'd experienced, all the stories he would have had, all the people he would have met, all the things. You think about even, even just being in that moment on the hospital bed, you know, his mind isn't even, isn't even filled with thoughts of like, like his diagnosis or what are his doctors saying. The conversations him and my dad were having in those moments had everything to do with the power of God to change somebody's life. Like they'd both been pastors for a long time and so they just sat there in that hospital room and just, and just reminisced. Just shared story after story after story. Hey, do you remember this person? Do you remember this, this story of God like touching someone's life and transforming them? Like this is, this is like the moment everybody gets. It's like that moment in your life where you go, you go, you go man, like, like, like what is it that really exists in my heart? Like it's, it's the revealer of what's going on in, inside of us. And so, you know, there are several very, very interesting historical examples of the last words that people chose to speak before they die. And one of the ones I think is, is, is really interesting was Bob Marley, his final words before he passed, he said, money can't buy life. Think about that being the last words to come out of your mouth before you die. Bob Marley, who had accumulated all of this wealth, who, right, who, who obviously was incredibly famous, he's sitting there, laying there on his deathbed, and he, and, he, and, he, and he realizes he has this moment before he dies, money can't buy life. It can, it can do all these other things, but it can't get me what I really want in this moment. When Harriet Tubman was on her deathbed dying in, in uh, 1913, she gathered her family around her, around her deathbed, and they sang that old Negro spiritual, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Her last words before she died were, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Basketball great Pistol Pete Maravich, an icon in the 60s and the 70s, after he had retired, he was playing pickup basketball, and uh, he was actually playing, playing ball with... Um, uh, Dr. James Dobson from Focus on the Family. Uh, they were really good friends. And, uh, so during this pickup, pickup game, um, Pistol Pete Maravich, he collapses. He has a heart attack. He collapses. His last words, before, last words before he died were, I feel great. Is that crazy? I feel great. And then the one that's always really stuck with me ever since I read his, uh, um, his autobiography, which is in my office, uh, Apple uh, co-founder Steve Jobs' famous last words, uh, were apparently, uh, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Think about that. Think about all of his life. Think about the impact. Think about the money accumulated. That last moment, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. I just bring this question to you today. What do you think your last words will be? What do you think your last words will be? Maybe a better way to even frame this question is, like, what would you want them to be? Like, what would you want your last words to be? The amazing thing about the scriptures is that we actually have these last words from Jesus. You know, in the very, very familiar crucifixion scene, we see a bloody, a beaten, a hanging on, on the cross and dying Jesus. Look at those around him and speak his final words as a man. It's, it's pretty powerful. Well, like, what are those words? And I, and I, think, I think the other question is, like, not just what are those words, but, like, why did he choose those words? Like, he obviously knew, like, he's crucified, he's on this cross. Like, why did Jesus choose these specific words in that moment? That's really what we're going to discuss over the next, uh, next several weeks. I love what Steve Brown says. I like how he frames this up. Really, why this matters. Like, why this journey for the next seven, eight weeks for us matters. But, but like, why the cross is so important. He says this. He says, at the center of human history is a cross, at the center of human history is a cross. Like the cross of Jesus is at the center. He's making this point that, that it's the apex of human history, right? That, that, that uh, everything that existed prior to the cross looks, 
looks towards it, and everything that has existed since the cross of Jesus looks back to it, that it's the apex, it's the center, it's the event of all events, right? It is, it is the event of all human events that, in, the, in which all human uh, events revolve, like, around that. And so when you think about 2,000 years of church history in which the cross has been the center point the entire time, I think maybe, maybe due to the fact that it's just been frequently taught over and over and over again, it's been discussed over and over again, memorialized, adorned, worn around our necks, it's been put on top of steeples. You know what, what can happen is, is, is people who have spent any, any, any length of time in the church, is that they can begin to think that they already know everything that there is to know about the cross, which can, which can create a very difficult task for me when I say, hey, we're going to talk about this for seven weeks. In addition to all of that, we have all of the problems in our own lives, like everybody here, right? We all, we all got stuff. Life is very complex. It can be hard. It can be challenging. In many ways, it's often overwhelming. And so the thought of leaving, you know, our very busy and complex lives and traveling back 2,000 years to an event that we already think we have a pretty good handle on to try to find something fresh and new, you know, that, that would be relevant to our life right now, that can be a very, like, difficult task for me to ask of you but like, that's exactly what I'm doing. Like, that's exactly what I wanna ask of you in this series, to travel back, to, to engage with a story that is very familiar in many ways, to try to find something fresh and new. The reason why I wanna do this is because if you're taking notes, I believe that there is more that Jesus wants to say to us from the cross. There is more that Jesus wants to say to us from the cross. We have the incredible privilege of not having to wonder what Jesus' last words were. We get to listen to those words, and we get to learn from those words. The final words that came out of his mouth before he died that have reverberated throughout all of human history. It's so important that we look at the cross together and remember what it tells us about who God really is. I love this from Daryl Bach, um, theologian, uh, who, co- who gives commentary on this. He says, of all the ironies of the cross that bridge the centuries, None is greater than the idea that eternal life for human beings springs out of Jesus' death. By offering up his son, God is able to make sons and daughters of all who respond to this work. Therefore, we must believe what God has done through Jesus at the cross and respond to it with a life that honors God. Really good stuff. If you've got your Bibles this morning, I want us to look at Luke chapter 23. You can navigate there on your phone even, or I'll have them on the screen. Luke 23, I'll just give you a second. Luke 23 is where we see the very famous scene, the crucifixion scene, where we see Jesus on a cross. And it says this in verse 32, it says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Interesting little, little side note here. When I went to Israel in 2019, there's two, two different places where they, they kind of commemorate where Jesus could have been buried, where the, the, the tomb was. There's one at the Church of the Holy uh, uh, Sepulcher in Jerusalem, and there's one just like, like kind of on the edge, a town called the, it's called the Garden Tomb. Interesting thing about the Garden Tomb, which, which I tend to think is, is, it just felt better, uh, more peaceful. Um, but it, it's, it's actually located next to this or on, on this, uh, this cliff, the, the side, of a, side of, a, uh, of a hill, and they showed a picture like, of that, uh, the, like the topography of it, like from early 1900s. It looks exactly like a skull. So I thought that was like, really interesting. 
Like maybe this is actually the spot or maybe it's really close to the spot of where Jesus could have been uh, crucified. But it says like in this place, like out, out of the city, right? There's this place called the skull. He was, he was led out there and it says they crucified him. Now the context to this story, you know, that we all know so well, right, is that the disciples at this point, they've left Jesus, right? His closest friends, those that he has poured his entire life into for the last three and a half years, they have abandoned him. He's all alone. He's been betrayed by Judas in the garden. He's been ultimately arrested, and as a result, the disciples have, have, have split, right? They've taken off. They ran in every different direction in an attempt to save their own life. You know, being associated with Jesus at this time, once he was arrested, would have, would have likely been a death sentence for them, and so they, they run, they run, afraid. From there, Jesus is brought to a corrupt trial, which I'm sure you know about and you've read about. False charges and false witnesses have stood against him and accused him and lied about him. He's been beaten, he's been flogged, he's been mocked by the Roman authorities. He's been insulted and slandered by the crowds around him, rejected by his own people. And now Jesus is being led outside of Jerusalem. He's got a cross on his back and he's being led out of the city of Jerusalem, the the very same city on earth that God had chosen for his presence to dwell in. God in flesh is now being pushed out of the place he's supposed to dwell, led out of the city to be crucified on a cross, betrayed, abandoned, sentenced, and led out to his execution. And it says in verse 33 that when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. Three of the most powerful words we have in the entire New Testament. And it's not just that Jesus died, it's how he died. Jesus doesn't simply die from old age, right? He doesn't just, you know, develop some, some, some form of sickness and, 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 and then just, just pass away. No, 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 Jesus dies crucified on a cross. It says they crucified him. There's lots of different ways that Jesus could have chosen to die. But he chose the cross. He chose the cross. Sometimes we forget that about, about Jesus. Like we, we read the story and we remember people are killing him, that people are beating him, that people are nailing him to the cross. But Jesus makes it very clear when he says what? He says, no one can take my life from me. He says, I, I, I lay it down. I, I, I lay it down of my own choosing, right? I have the authority, I have the power to, to lay it down and I have the authority to pick it back up. Like, like Jesus makes it very clear that the only reason why these people are able to take his life is because he's, he's permitted it. He's allowed it. He chooses the cross. He chooses the cross. This type of death shows God's willingness to humble himself. Like you think about, you know, the birth of Jesus and, and, and you know, God humbling himself, taking on flesh, coming to earth, leaving you know, his throne in heaven, coming here to, to be literally God in flesh, God incarnate, to walk amongst us. That's, that's an incredibly humbling thing to, to be, a, 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 not just a human, but to be a baby who can't help himself at all. But you fast forward to the crucifixion, and I'd say this story like, of, of Jesus being crucified uh, might even be a, a greater form of humility than coming as a baby. To take on the ultimate shame in, in that time, in that, in that time in history, the ultimate shame, being crucified, being stripped, being beaten, being, being crucified on a cross for everybody to watch you, God takes on the ultimate shame that any human could possibly experience at that time in history. 
The Apostle Paul talks to us about this in Philippians 2, verse 5. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing, right? This is the idea of, of, of God pouring himself out, like, like leaving the advantages of heaven and coming as, as, as a human being. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. And here it says, even death on a cross. It wasn't just death. Jesus wasn't just obedient to death. He was obedient even to death on a cross, which in their time would have been like the worst possible way to die. Not just because it was incredibly painful, but because it was the most shameful way to die, the most embarrassing way. Like there is no dignity anymore. Do you understand? And, and Jesus is obedient. Not only does he father, follow his father in obedience here to death, but he follows it in obedience even to death on a cross. The New Testament commentary says the most extreme word in the English language to describe pain is the word excruciating. It's excruciatingly painful. You ever use that word? Which comes from the Latin word excruciatus, meaning out of the cross. Out of the cross. And so this is what Jesus is going through in this moment. Right? He's been betrayed, he's been abandoned, and now he's been crucified on a hill outside of the city, and he's experiencing the most horrific pain that you and I could ever imagine. And so here we, here we have it, right? The story, the setting. Here's Jesus, crucified on a cross. There are two criminals, one on either side of him. And it says in, in Luke 23, 35, it says, the people stood watching. The people stood watching. Well, who are these people that are enjoying the crucifixion of Jesus? Can you imagine? Like, who, who, who enjoys this? Like, how does a crucifixion draw a crowd? Isn't that, isn't that interesting to think about? Like, like, who's enjoying watching Jesus get crucified? Why, why are people coming out to watch this? These are just common people. These are just your everyday common people. Obviously, Jesus was, was uh, a bit of a lightning rod, you know. He obviously had some notoriety at this point in his life. People had heard what was going on. But the people in this crowd, the people who are standing watching, many of them were, were some of the same people who just a few days earlier on Palm Sunday were worshiping Jesus, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus has his triumphant entry into Jerusalem that day, they're laying down palm branches. They're laying down their cloaks. They're, they're worshiping Jesus. They're acknowledging that he is the Messiah. Just a few days earlier, some of the same people who are now Standing there watching Jesus being crucified are some of the same who were worshiping just a few days prior. This, day, this very day that Jesus was hanging on the cross, many of these same people had been yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. What had happened in just a few short days? What had happened for them to be able to go from like worship to, to really cursing Jesus? What had happened in that short amount of time? Well, over that amount of time, they had, they had basically determined that Jesus wasn't who they thought he was. They were disappointed that Jesus wasn't going to be the deliverer for them like they thought he, he would be. They had an image in their mind of what the Messiah would look like, and Jesus wasn't fitting that image anymore. And so just in a few days, they go from worship to cursing Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been in a journey similar, you've ever experienced something in your life similar where you, you find yourself in just a short amount of time because of, a, of an event in your life is, is, is so big. You find yourself going in just a few days being somebody who's like, who's worshiping Jesus or loves God to then being at a point where you're like, I'm not sure that he is who I thought he was. 
This is exactly what's happening with these people. The religious leaders have ruined the crowd against Jesus. They've led them astray. The people at best, as with any crowd, are fickle, right? Like they say one thing over here and, and then, and then they, they, they say another. Many of these same people have heard Jesus teach. Like they've been there watching Jesus uh, teach, listening to him. Likely, uh, many of them were, were, were there uh, when, when he fed the 5,000. Many of them were there to hear Jesus teach on more than one occasion. It's possible that some of these people would have even been healed by him or been delivered by him. It's possible that some of the same people who Jesus had, had touched, had, had impacted, were in this crowd. But what we know about crowds is that they are always, always, always fickle. Like, what have you done for me lately? And in this moment, as Jesus is crucified on the cross, they are unified in their rejection of Jesus. It goes on in 35, it says, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And so here we have, here in 35, like the Jewish rulers at the crucifixion scene. So this is the Sanhedrin. These are the Pharisees. This is the, the, um, the chief priest Caiaphas. They are there at the foot of the cross. They're there watching, like in approval, giving their approval of Jesus being crucified. You know, you know, you know what's really happening here? Like these guys were threatened by Jesus. They were threatened by him because he comes along and he's doing things they can't do. He's coming along and he's making claims about himself that only the Messiah should be able to claim. And they, they, are, they are offended by the claims that Jesus is making. That somehow he is, he is greater than them. And so what they have done, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the chief priests, all these people, they have come together at the, at the scene of the cross to, to look at Jesus, to sneer at him and basically say this, Jesus, you will not rule us. You will not be our ruler. You will not rule over us. Amazing to me in the crucifixion story of Jesus is the reluctance and the resistance from the Roman leaders to kill Jesus. It's like, it's like they just want to kind of let him off. They, don't, they, they, they seem to not, to not feel like what he's done is really all that bad. And so they, they, they just think, well, let's just like teach him a lesson and let him go. But the, it's the Jewish leaders. They, 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 they sneer at him. They sneer at him. It says, it says in uh, um, John 19, 12 through 16, it says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Right? Because he's like, look, it's not that, this isn't worthy of death, what he's done. Maybe, maybe it's not great, but like, let's just let him go. But the Jews kept, kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes Caesar. Well, I mean, look, the Jews didn't, didn't like Caesar, okay? He was, he was responsible for their oppression, but now in here, they're just like, he's our king, you know? And, and, and you can just see what's going on. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the, on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered, finally, the chief priest answered, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So he washes his hands, right? He says, fine, you, you, you deal with them. So the Roman leaders certainly see Jesus as a problem to be dealt with. Like he's, he's kind of causing an uprising, which they don't want, right? They want, they, want, they want everyone to kind of fall into line. 
So they see him maybe as a political threat, as a disturbance to the peace, but, um, but certainly not somebody to, 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 to deserving of execution. They see him as, as a challenge to be responded to in that given moment. But amazingly, like it's the Jewish rulers, not the, uh, you know, not the, the Roman leaders who are pushing for Pilate to sanction the crucifixion of Jesus. It says that they sneered at him, right? Remember in Luke 23, they sneered, which in the Greek, that word means to turn up your nose in disdain. Hatred. So from the Torah, I've mentioned this before, but from the Torah, there is a theology that these Jewish leaders would have believed out of Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, it talks about how anyone who was hanging on a tree was cursed by God. And so, like, remember, these are the religious leaders, so they understand the Torah. They know it. Most of them have it memorized. So they would know in Deuteronomy 21, there is, this, there is this, this, this idea that anyone who's hanging on a cross is cursed by God. And so they are, they are sneering at Jesus, right? They, they are turning up their nose in disdain. You know, what, you know what they're thinking? What a failure. Like you claim to be the Messiah and yet you're hanging here on a tree being cursed by God. That's what they, they're feeling, feeling validated in, in their, in their uh, emotions and in, in what they have done because now they see Jesus cursed by God hanging on a cross. That's what they believe. And what they don't realize, what's really happening in this moment, in this exact moment, is that Jesus really is being cursed by God, but he's being cursed by God on their behalf. They were just unaware of what was happening. They didn't know what was going on. In Luke 23, 35, it says, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Save yourself. Right, prove that you're God. Like, like come on down off this, off this cross. Prove that you're God. Save yourself. And, and so the Roman soldiers here in this story, they are mocking Jesus. They've put a crown of thorns on him because of his claim to be the king of the Jews. Complete and total mockery. They put a robe, a purple robe on him, trying to provoke him to tell them that he is the king of the Jews. And then they crucify him between two actual criminals and begin to gamble for his clothes. Pretty wild story. And then they go on one step further. They put a sign above Jesus on the cross that said this in verse 38. It says, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. It's a complete and total mockery of Jesus' failed efforts to be king. Complete and total mockery. So here in this story in Luke 23 is Jesus, the son of God. He is naked on a cross, being surrounded by friends who have abandoned him. Crowds who are fickle and have turned on him. Religious leaders who oppose him. The soldiers who are mocking him and crucifying him. And what a scene, right? What a moment in history. The God of all creation being rejected and being crucified by his own creation. John's gospel was right in John 1, 10 through 11. It says, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is what is happening at the crucifixion of Jesus. So that's the scene. That's the story. You know it. Right? Maybe I, I was able to bring maybe a little bit out today that, that maybe you had forgotten, but that's the story. The question that leads us into really our series and leads us on this journey towards Easter is, well, how did Jesus respond to that? Because he's on the cross and he's been crucified. So how does, how does he respond to all of that? Verse 34 tells us exactly how Jesus responds. It says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. There are seven statements that Jesus gives from the cross. His final words, his famous last words, the very first thing Jesus says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Think of everything that Jesus could have said in that moment. I already mentioned earlier, like, you know, what somebody says at the very end, what comes out of their mouth at the end, is a revealer of what really matters most to them. It reveals what's on their mind in that moment. Like, you think about somebody on their deathbed, like, you know, like, I guarantee you they're not thinking about, like, organizing their closet. You know, I guarantee you that they're not thinking about, you know, anything that, that, that is kind of trivial that we, that we kind of, like, get, get caught up in. I guarantee you that when you're on your deathbed, or you're about to, your life is about to come to an end, like only the things that matter are the things that are on your mind. And so that's what's going on with Jesus here. He's coming to the end. He's being crucified. And look at what comes out of his mouth. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Listen to me. Everything I think I know about forgiveness goes out the window when I read this story. Everything I think I know about forgiveness goes out the, out the window. This word forgive in Luke 23, 34 In, in the Greek tense that it's used means that it's being used repeatedly. So, so when you go back to the original text and, and you see the word that's being used there for forgive, it's, it's not just a, a single use. It's, it's a, it's a, it, it means that it's being used repeatedly. So we get this picture in our mind that, that, Jesus, uh, that Jesus is repeatedly saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And he didn't just say it once, that he's saying it over and over and over again. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Look at this thought with me. As these people are putting Jesus to death, he's praying for them, asking for God's mercy and forgiveness to be poured out on them. Who, who, who does this? Who acts like this? Who behaves this way? Who responds like this? And, this, and the reason why this is so extraordinary, I'm gonna try to tie this together. The reason why this is so extraordinary, like it's a big deal that he said this. It really is. Like in, in and of itself, it's like who acts like that? But the reason why this is even, even, even a, a bigger deal is because earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says something very profound in Matthew 5 where he says, you gotta love your enemies, right? You remember that? You gotta pray for those who persecute you. You gotta do good to them. Look at Matthew 5, 43 and, 40, and 44. He says, you've heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like, this is the Sermon on the Mount. So, so I mean, Matthew 5, Jesus is letting everybody know, like, look, you've heard it said this, but I'm gonna tell you the real spirit behind the law is this. Like, love your enemies, pray for them. Pray for the people who do wrong to you. And so on the cross, now, all these, these years later, on the cross, Jesus is, is there, and he's being tested, like, was enemy love just a theory or was it a theology? Was it just a good idea in, 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 in the moment when he was on the hillside teaching the Sermon on the Mount? Or, or was this like what he really believed? Like, did he really stand by this? Did he really mean it? As his actual enemy is standing there and killing him, does Jesus really mean this? And he prays for them and he asks the Father to forgive them as well in this moment. He embodies what he taught. He didn't just tell other people to love their enemy and to, and to pray for those who are persecuting you. He is right there from the cross. He's doing it himself. It says in uh, 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24, that when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats, 
Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Powerful. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. There it is, right? Harkening back to Deuteronomy 21. There is no mistake, right, how the Bible is written. These guys, these guys understood what they were doing. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So this is the son of God right here on the cross and he's not retaliating, but instead he's praying for those who are crucifying him. He is aligning his heart with a good God. He's aligning his heart with a good father whose will is that none would perish but that all would come to repentance, including these very people who are surrounding him in that day. And so the forgiveness from the cross, it gives us insight into the heart of God and the links at which God is willing to go to to deliver humanity from the curse of death. And I, I love this, this story for, 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 for lots of reasons, but I think it plays really well. I think, I, think, I, think, I think it serves us well to be reminded of this, especially at the time that we live in right now, when, when everybody who doesn't think like you is supposed to be your enemy. When everyone who has a different worldview or a different understanding, a different value system is, is pitted against you as your enemy, where, where identity politics are at an all-time high where, where, you know, there's so much vitriol and anger. Like, like, like the words of Jesus really matter. They should, like, they, they should center all of us in times like this. They should cause us all to go, hey, like, all right. Well, if they are my enemy, then my response should not be hatred and anger. My response should be love. Like, I should actually start praying for them. Like, that's, that's how we respond as followers of Jesus. That's actually what makes us different from, like, everybody else really in the world. And so I want to I give you this, th this thought. The beauty of the cross is that if these people can be forgiven, all these people around Jesus, if these people can be forgiven, then we can be forgiven of our sins as well. It's the beauty of the cross. It's the beauty of what's going on here. If putting the Son of God on the cross can be forgiven, then you can be forgiven as well. Think about that. Like, think about everything you've ever done. Think about like the worst of the worst of the worst. If putting the Son of God on the cross can be forgiven, what, what is it about you that could not be forgiven? Like there's nothing. If betraying and abandoning the Son of God by the disciples can be forgiven, then you can be forgiven as well. If a fickle crowd that turned their backs on him can be forgiven, then you can be forgiven as well. And here's what Jesus is saying from the cross. He's saying like there is nothing you have done that God cannot forgive. There's nothing. And it's why you and I, why we are called to bring our sins to the cross, to run to the cross, to not delay not entertain sin, to not allow it to maintain, to not let it grow in our lives, but to bring it to the cross where it can be dealt with, right? Where the blood of Jesus is sufficient to deal with it, to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Marshall Hoffman says this, which is phenomenal. He says, the door of the kingdom of God swings open on the hinges of forgiveness. The door of the kingdom of God swings open on the hinges of forgiveness. So think about, think about forgiveness. Think about giving forgiveness. Think about receiving forgiveness. The doorway to the kingdom of God, it opens through forgiveness. When you offer forgiveness to somebody who has wronged you, you know what you're doing? You are allowing the kingdom of God to, to like manifest here on earth because it, it's, it's completely upside down. Forgiveness is not the way of the world. It's the way of Jesus. It's the, it's the doorway into the kingdom of God and, it's, and, 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 and then receiving forgiveness from Jesus, like that's how, you, that's how you enter into the kingdom anyway, receiving forgiveness that you don't deserve. The kingdom of God, it swings open on the hinges of forgiveness. 
Jesus' desire for his followers to embody this very same kind of, of forgiveness and enemy love is what hung on the cross 2,000 years ago. Do you know that enemy love was the distinctive feature of Christians for the first 300 years of church history? It was the distinctive enemy love, the first 300 years. Like, like in the first 300 years of the church, there, there was, you, know, you want to know that like the, most, the most famous, the most popular scripture that was repeated was not John 3.16. It was Matthew 5.44. It was love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That was, the, that was like the hallmark scripture that the followers of Jesus in the first 300 years were known for. They would, they would repeatedly repeat that verse, repeatedly say that. I mean, how many, how many like football games, like, have you been to where you have seen Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 up there? On, on, like, it's always John three sixteen. It's always about love. Like, it's about God loving us. It's not about, like, us loving our enemy. Like, that's not what people really want to get, get uh, you know, proclaim and get too excited about. That's what, that's what the, the, the followers of Jesus in the first 300 years of the church were known for, this enemy love. They were put oftentimes in places of great persecution. Like, if, if you read about the church history, uh, uh, like, uh, until... until the 300s, you know, when, when Christianity really became like the, the state religion in Rome, prior to that, they were heavily, heavily, heavily persecuted. It's, it's horrific what you can read about the Christians. They were put into places of great persecution and torment, they, and yet they would forgive people doing this to them. Like, th- th- there's stories you can read about them forgiving people who were doing these kinds of things to them. Um, the way that, that Christians died was like so effective that at times, even unbelieving onlookers who were watching Christians be killed, they would become so uh, uh, moved by, by their, like how they would uh, uh, behave and how they would react to those killing them that many times uh, people who were non-believers would leave the stands and they would, they would join the Christians like even into death. Like, like that's, that's what it was like back then. They were co- so compelled by their love even in death that many people were just like, I, I, that's, that's what life is all about. I'm gonna follow them in death as well. That's, that's, that's what we are called to do. We are called to like, to love those who persecute, to pray for those who persecute us, to love our enemies, to offer something that like the world is really compl- nearly completely devoid of. Like, where do you see enemy love championed anywhere in, in, in the mainstream? It's not, because it's a hallmark of the, of, of the church. It's a hallmark of the kingdom of God. And we have to be people who don't just say, well, that's crazy, that doesn't make sense. We gotta be people who, who embody this, who live this out. The kind of forgiveness that Jesus offered from the cross is the kind of forgiveness that you've received. You've received this kind of love. While you were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, of, 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 of God. He loved us and he went to the cross for us. So look at this thought with me. The call of God throughout the scriptures is to release those who sin against us from our personal right to collect on the debt of their offense. That's, that's exactly what the scriptures teach. Is we are called by God to release those who sin against us from our right, our, our right to collect on the debt. And we see this embodied best in the person of Jesus himself, who's, who in the face of sin chose, to look, chose not to look the other way nor to pay the person back, but to deal with the sins committed against him in the most compelling way possible by forgiving the people right there in front of him. 
Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Father, forgive them. You guys go ahead and come up. Ephesians chapter four, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says in verse 25, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor for we are all members of one body. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Right? How many of y'all need to hear that one? Um, it's always been a, been a verse that I've enjoyed because it, it means that you can be angry and not sin. Right? I'm like, I, wanna, I need to figure that one out. In your, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Verse 29, do not, let, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I love, I love just like how Paul picks every word possible. Well, he didn't say malice, so I guess I'm good. No, he picked, he's just, just to make sure you know. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Forgiving each other. Just as. In the same way. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Like, their eyes are, bl are blinded. Hey, they just don't know. Like, I, I actually just have great compassion on them, even though they've wronged me and hurt me. Father, they, they obviously don't know right now. The enemy has, has blinded them. They can't see clearly. Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. Like, it's, it's, exact, it's the exact same kind of forgiveness. It's not, it's not something similar. It's not something that looks like it. It's the same, just as Christ God forgave you. The thing about forgiveness is that the cost of forgiveness is great. Let's, let's, not, let's, not, let's not skirt around that. Like, the cost is great. Forgiveness is costly, especially if you've been wronged. If you've been sinned against, you have to bear that cost. Forgiveness is costly. If someone steals from you, like if someone comes into your home and they steal some, something from you, what do you got to do? You got to go replace that. Right? You got to go replace it yourself. It's not free. So just because somebody steals from you and, you and you're like, yeah, I forgive you, it doesn't mean that there was not a cost that you, that you had to incur. incur. Like, it, it's still a great cost to you. It's not free. You don't just snap your fingers, forgive, and everything is fixed all of a sudden. You still have to replace the thing that was stolen. You still have to replace the thing that was taken from you. You can forgive the thief for sure, but it's going to cost you to replace it. Forgiveness is, it, it costs a lot. The cost of forgiveness is great. But look at this. Look at this thought. At great cost to himself, God was able to forgive us. At great cost to himself. The cost of forgiveness is great. It costs him everything. But the outcome in the lives of those who forgive is greater. It's greater still. And through the process of forgiving, 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 through the process of forgiving and being forgiven, you and I, we can experience great freedom. Great freedom. Wholeness. 
intimacy with God and with others, all of which is part of the life that Jesus intended for us to have. Look at this. The one who is owed a debt always has the authority to cancel that debt. Sometimes when we've been wronged and someone's done something to us, we act so powerless. We, in fact, most people will, will just take on an entire victim identity or mentality and they'll just be like, well, like I have no other choice. Like this was done to me, so this is how I have to respond. No, 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 no. The one who was owed a debt always has the authority to cancel the debt. Like, so you can choose whether or not you're gonna collect on the debt or not. Luke 7, 41 and 42 says, two men owed money to a certain money lender. They owed him 500 denarii, which is their currency, and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Right, they couldn't pay him back. So one owed, one owed him 500, which was a great debt, and one owed him a smaller debt. 50, neither of them could pay. It didn't really matter. Like, it doesn't matter like if you owe a lot or a little. It's like you're both in debt. Like, you're both in the same position. And what this parable is trying to reveal to us, it doesn't matter like if you lived a horrific life, done terrible things, or if, if you've been pretty good most of your life. It doesn't really matter. Like, your debt is the same. Like, you can't, you can't, like, repay the debt on your own. It's only through the blood of Jesus on the cross that gives you the chance to stand right before God. It doesn't matter. Like, there's no such, no such thing as being good enough. Like, there's no such thing as being good enough. You're not good enough. Your best, Scripture tells us, is like filthy rags compared to his glory. You're, none of us are good enough. Right here, it doesn't matter if you, if you owe a lot or you owe a little, you still owe. You still owe, and you and I, each of us, everyone who has ever breathed and will breathe, is, 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 sits here at the mercy of a benevolent God who, who, who in his goodness cancels our debt. He cancels our debt. What keeps us from canceling the debts that are owed to us? What keeps us from doing that? You always have the authority to cancel that debt. Think about your mortgage lender. I know it's very unlikely, but you know, they... they they have the authority if they chose to, to cancel your debt. It's their debt, right? If they said, hey, you don't longer, they, they could come to you and say, you no longer have to pay us. They could cancel it out. They have the authority. You have that same authority. You're not a, you, you don't have to be a victim. You can actually be powerful to choose, to release people who have wronged you, to forgive. Maybe you've heard it said like this. I've heard it said from several people before, so it's not original, that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's like drinking poison, waiting for the other person to die. Absolutely. Mark 11, 25, and I'm, 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 I'm just about done. It says, and when you stand praying, okay, which we're gonna do in a minute, we're gonna stand here, we're gonna worship again, we're gonna stand before the Lord. When you stand praying, like when you come before the Lord, you like we did earlier, you take communion, you go back to your seat, you pray before you take it. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Look at this. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your sins. It's, it's, it's actually like a haunting scripture. 
Because I, like everything I just said, like is true. Like, like we are nothing without the forgiveness of God and his willingness to cancel our debt. But like so often we allow ourselves to hang on to debts that we shouldn't hang on to. This doesn't mean that we don't, we don't treat it seriously. It doesn't mean that like people haven't actually injured us in, in deep and meaningful ways. But what it, what, what, it, what it means is we come before the Lord and we just understand, God, like this is too big for me to carry. This is too big for me to just, to just uh, allow myself to, to, to keep in my heart. And so I'm gonna transfer this over to you. Like all the, all the ways I've been wronged, I'm gonna hand it back to you, God. I, I, I'm not equipped to handle this. My shoulders aren't big enough. I wanna make sure my heart is clean before you. I wanna be able to receive your forgiveness. I wanna be in a position where I'm, I'm able to receive the forgiveness of God continually. And not just one time. I wanna to continue to receive the forgiveness of God over and over and over again. And so I gotta, I gotta give it away as well. C.S. Lewis famously says this. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. It's really, really good. Would you stand? The church is at its best when it takes on Jesus' spirit as it is wronged by taking this message of forgiveness and extending it to the world around us. That's when the church is at its best. And look, I understand that this is a, this is a heavy topic. It's a heavy topic, it's not an easy topic. I don't treat like the, the, the challenges that life has given you as trivial in any way. But I'm just telling you that the way Jesus forgives you is like this. And the way as a follower of Jesus we are expected to forgive is like this as well. Would you bow your heads with me for a minute? I just have two simple questions for you. Where, where do you need to receive forgiveness? Where do you need, to, in your life, do you need to receive forgiveness from God? Where do you need God to come and through his goodness and his grace cleanse you from unrighteousness? Where is there stuff where you need God to, to, to forgive you and then where in your life do you need to extend forgiveness to someone? If you're just here this morning with every head bowed and you would say, Pastor Jordan, I, I need the forgiveness of God. There are, there are things. I need the forgiveness of God to come and cleanse me, to wash over me. Can I just see your hand? There's, there's no shame. Everybody, everybody in here, every, every eye is closed, heads are bowed. You need the forgiveness of God. You need him just to come and bring uh, some forgiveness to, like, to, to, to cleanse your conscience, to make you right before God. So Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would just come. You see the hands, you see the hearts. Right now, God, you know the ones who just, who just understand there's been something in the way. There's been something that's been, been blocking their connection with you. And, and so Father, I pray in your great goodness right now, you would come and cleanse all unrighteousness. You would forgive us of our sins. You would make us right before you, O oh God. Wherever you're at, just, just under your breath right now, why don't you just, just, just ask the Lord for forgiveness. Just say, God, I need your forgiveness right now. I need you to come and set me right. I wanna walk out of here just set right before you. It's a new day. It's a new time in my life. And, and God, I, I pray you come and just set everything right in me right now. Would you cleanse me in Jesus' name? Now, if you're here this morning and you would say, you say, Pastor Jordan, there are absolutely some areas of my life 
that, that have been hard, have been challenging, where people have wronged me and done some things to me, and I've been carrying these things in my heart. And this morning, I need to begin to allow the Holy Spirit to soften me in a way that I can start to, to extend forgiveness to, to people who have hurt me and wronged me. Would you just lift your hand up so I can see you and pray for you today? If you need to, you need to extend forgiveness, it's time to just, to just let it go. It's time to just get it out of your heart, to transfer it over to God, to let him take it. Father, right now I ask by the power of the Holy Spirit, a power that is beyond ourselves, a power we do not possess in and of ourselves, but a power that you give us through the Holy Spirit. I pray for there to be freedom in here right now, the ability to extend forgiveness, to let things go, to, to uh, uh, let people free from jail that we've put them in, oh God. I pray that as we, as we look at you on that cross, as we see that image of you on that cross, offering forgiveness to us and to others, God, we would do the same thing that we would let people go. We'd let our hearts be cleansed right now. And so Jesus, in this place, would you start to just minister to every wound? Would you minister to every hurt? God, would you come and in the gentleness and in your kindness, would you start to just, to just repair the wounds right now? Set us free, heal us, God, so that we can be the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen and amen. Amen. Would you